When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. George Harrison was angry. The Beatles were world famous rock superstars earning big bucks, but their guitarist felt robbed. I had discovered I was paying a huge amount of money to the tax man, Harrison later wrote. You're so happy that you finally started earning money, and then you find out about tax. It was the 95% super tax rate imposed on very rich Brits by Harold Wilson's Labour government that, in 1966, inspired Harrison to write Taxman. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet, sang the bogeyman tax collector, reveling in his hold over high earners like Harrison and taking 19 shillings for every one the beetle was allowed to keep. It's a perennial dilemma for governments, and one being grappled with in America as Democrats try to turn their spending proposals into law. Who should foot the tax bill, and how big should that bill be? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideaux, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how fair is America's tax system? Democrats are in the midst of a legislative battle with themselves as they try to turn President Biden's signature economic proposals into law. They want to get two spending bills through Congress, the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill and the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, that would spend more federal dollars on helping the poor and on climate change mitigation in particular. To fund this, the Democrats plan to make the federal tax system slightly more progressive by raising the top rates of income tax and increasing the corporate tax rate. What is the best way to pay for Joe Biden's vision of America? With me to discuss all of this are John Fasman, the US digital editor, and... Oh, it's not playing. That's so annoying. Charlotte, your drum roll. Hang on. Charlotte Howard, the New York bureau chief. Charlotte, is it getting old yet? I think the fact that you couldn't turn it on is a sign. Is the universe trying to tell you that um, I deserve only one drum roll a year? I think maybe you're right. Maybe one drum roll a year is enough for anyone. But I'm still so delighted that you're back, as is John. How has your week been? It's been great. New York is in the midst of glorious fall weather in between the two seasons. It's either kind of a hot 
hellish inferno or an archipelago of disgusting slush puddles. But right now it's in all its glory. So everyone's out and about and the city feels very alive. John, how about you? You buried, or you didn't really bury, but you gave the Prius a send-off this week after much time in each other's company. How, do, how does that feel? Are you in mourning? Yeah, the Prius has gone to the great beyond for worthy little suburban cars, wherever that is. But uh, it held up really well, as long as we had it. What's the greatest trip you took in the Prius, just to honour it for a moment? Well, I got it in Las Vegas when a friend was moving. So I probably the greatest trip was driving it from Vegas back to New York in about uh, in about three days. And the best discovery of that trip was uh, what a great city Omaha, Nebraska is. Um, I was there for a night and a day and just, just fell in love with it. Underrated city. Uh, better than Boston. Better than Boston, which we will talk about next week, I hope, as part of an episode on police and prosecutorial reform. Well, this has been a really busy week in Congress, so let's get into it. There's been a lot of to and fro over whether the government would shut down and raising of the debt ceiling. What we propose to do in this episode is park all of that and look at the bigger question of how Democrats hope to pay for the spending plans that they're hoping to push through Congress. So the $1 trillion infrastructure bill and the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, which spends money on all sorts of things. And really to get into this question of how fair the American tax system is at the moment, and whether the Democratic proposals, which, you know, the status of which are somewhat uncertain, will make it fairer or not. To begin with, Charlotte, could you help us along by summarising the tax rises that the Democrats in the House, at least, are proposing? Sure. So what President Biden and Democrats want to do is raise taxes for the highest income earners and for companies. So that means increasing the tax rate itself and having more people pay that higher tax rate, lowering the threshold at which they would pay that tax rate down to $400,000 a year for individuals. There's an increase in the corporate tax rate from 21% to 26.5%. That's actually less than Biden promised in the campaign, which would be 28%. There's an increase in capital gains taxes to try to tax investment income more fairly so that all the people on Wall Street pay an amount commensurate to what they're actually taking home. So there's a whole raft of different changes, but the thematic push is to have a tax increase that falls most heavily on the richest Americans, while at the same time trying to lower taxes or offer tax credits for those on the lower end of the income distribution. Okay, that's a really helpful summary. Thank you. I've been speaking to Simon Rabinovich, who covers the US economy for The Economist. He told me that if these tax increases happen, it will be a big political moment, as well as an economically significant one. It's been nearly three decades. You have to go back to, uh, you know, very, very early in the Bill Clinton presidency for the last time that that Congress pushed through, you know, a wide ranging series of, of tax increases. Um, and so if you look at America's, you know, overall trajectory since then, it's been bill after bill uh, that has lowered uh, the overall personal and corporate tax rate such that America is now one of the most lightly taxed 
rich countries uh, in the world. So the this bill would begin to reverse that tide. Along with raising the overall tax level, it's also very significant in trying to make the tax system uh, more progressive, to have greater redistribution uh, of income, of course, beginning to address some of the concern uh, about the great increase in inequality uh, in recent decades. The proposal is to increase income tax, the rate of income tax at the top end, and also to increase taxes on corporations. Why do things that way? Is it primarily a question of politics? You know, what's popular among the Democratic caucus and what they think they can sell to voters? Or is it more a question of policy that that this is a sensible way to raise revenue? Well, it's a little bit of both. I mean, obviously, it's it's popular to to you know quote unquote tax the rich. Uh, you know, Biden's campaign pledge was that he would not raise taxes on anybody earning less than four hundred thousand dollars, which is quite a, a high cutoff line if you want to define rich and not rich. But nevertheless, they've they've basically tried to stick to that pledge uh, when you look at the details of the tax increases. Um, Policy wise, you know, there's some sense to this as well in that, you know, if you're thinking about trying to get an economic boost from redistribution, so not not just the pursuit of equity, but actually the pursuit of economic growth, you know, people at the lower end of the income ladder have what economists refer to as a higher marginal propensity to consume. That simply means that people spend more of of what they earn when when they have lower incomes. Uh, And so taking a bit of money away from people who have too much money, you know, that they don't know what to do with it, uh, to give to people that they actually, you know, need to spend this money on food, on healthcare, on their children's education, that could be good for the economy as well. Simon, one thing that I think is puzzling about taxation in America is that the overall tax take of the American government is relatively low compared with other rich countries. At the same time, conservatives often make the point, and and they're right about this, that if you look at the headline tax rates, the system's already quite progressive in the sense that the rich pay relatively more, not just in absolute terms, but in percentage terms, relatively more on their incomes than poorer Americans do. So how can those two things be true at the same time? How can the tax system actually be pretty progressive and the tax take be quite low? So I think if you narrowly define the personal income taxes, you know, these are the different tax brackets and you look at the highest rate of, you know, which will now be nearly 40% if this passes, you know, that is actually very, very high by by international standards. Um, but it's also clear that there's all kinds of, of loopholes. And especially when you're in that, that kind of upper income tax bracket, uh, you know, these are the sorts of loopholes that the ultra rich are, are you know, most capable of, of taking advantage of. One area that has been a big gap in the American tax system uh, has been the way that capital gains are treated. Uh, you know, if you uh, look, strictly speaking, at the capital gains tax, it's relatively high, 20%, potentially going up to 25% with this reform. Um, but if you're ultra-rich and you pass on your you know, your property or your stock holdings to your child, um, that inheritance uh, ends up effectively not being taxed and that the basis on which the capital gains is taxed will be based on the market value at the point of inheritance. So if you had made that investment and it had appreciated you know, by hundreds of percent, well, when you pass that on to your child, all of those gains, as, as far as the IRS is concerned, are effectively wiped out. So there's all kinds of loopholes 
um, that allow people to plan around the tax system. Um, but then the other point is that be, because, you know, in other countries, you know, they will rely much more heavily on sales taxes. It does mean that America has to rely more heavily uh, on the personal income tax as well as corporate taxes to try to make up that shortfall. So, Charlotte, those democratic tax proposals, which Simon walked us through a minute ago, those are proposals coming out of the House Ways and Means Committee, which draws up tax proposals. It's not clear that they'd get past the Senate, but I think we can talk about them as a good indication of what Democrats, at least in the House, ideally would like to do. So what do you make of these plans? Do they seem sensible to you? Yeah, I think that they're directionally sensible. And as always, the devil is a bit in the details. But one thing I think is just worth underlining is that the Biden administration is arguing very strongly that increasing taxes in the way that they propose will not compromise growth, that the combination of the big spending plans that they propose, both the infrastructure bill and the social programs and the policies to mitigate the impact of climate change, that with the tax increases, together, these will support the type of America that Biden thinks we want to move toward. And I think that you see some pushback, most clearly in the response to the business community. You had the Business Roundtable, which is a pretty interesting group of CEOs led by Doug McMillan, who's the head of Walmart. They ostensibly support much of Biden's agenda. They talk about the importance of limiting climate change their pro-infrastructure investment, pro-immigration reform. During the Trump era, they were very anti some of Trump's more divisive rhetoric. But they're pushing back very hard on the tax increases that Democrats have proposed. And Democrats would say that some of these broad investments favor business. If companies are concerned about having access to workers, you need to have more childcare so that people can enter the labor force. If you want people to have higher skills, you need to invest in community colleges. But when push comes to shove, you see these companies lobbying against the tax increases. They're running ads against the Democratic tax plan. They support the infrastructure bill, but not the higher corporate taxes that come along with the broader social spending bill. So I think the response to the business community in some ways helps illuminate the broader challenge, which is that Ostensibly, there are voters as well as business leaders who are broadly supportive, at least directionally, of what Biden wants to do in terms of investing in different parts of the American economy, be it infrastructure, be it providing more expansive social services. But the question is, how expansive do people actually want government to be? And are they really ready to get behind a big tax increase to help support that? And that's very much an open question. I think that's a great point. What you see in fights over tax policy, not now, but, you know, as a, as a as a sort of general component of them, is a sort of tacit argument over what your values are and what sort of country you would like to be. What Joe Biden is proposing is a massive expansion of the state, a massive expansion of the welfare state, really. And if that's what America wants, America needs to figure out a way to pay for it. It's very hard to do with just raising taxes on the very rich and on corporations, even though that's the most politically palatable thing to do. Can I ask you both a political question? The last time Congress pushed through a significant tax increase, a federal tax increase, was 1993. And a year after that, the Democrats lost their majority in the House in the famous Gingrich Revolution. And it seems like for all the years since then, 
members of Congress on the Democratic side have been rather scarred by that. And all the momentum was with the you know, Grover Norquist, Americans for tax reform argument that basically said, if you raise taxes ever, you'll get killed in elections. So are Democrats taking a huge gamble here? Or have, for some reason, the politics of increasing taxes just changed in the intervening years? Yeah, I think, you know, Democrats raised taxes in 1993. And just a couple of years before you remember George H.W. Bush promised, read my lips, no new taxes in 1988, then raised taxes and was thrown out of office. I think those two lessons may have been overlearned. I mean, there's something to be said for leveling with the American public about what taxes pay for. I don't think the Democrats have quite done that. I think they're still sort of shying away from more efficient taxes that could raise the money more effectively than just constantly raising taxes on the wealthy. But I think raising taxes on the wealthy is part of it. And I think there's something to be said for Democrats saying, look, if you want this big expansion of the state, we're going to have to pay for it. The gamble is that the expansion of the state will be noticeable enough to enough people quickly enough that they won't suffer at the ballot box in 2024. I think that's far from certain. Okay, thank you both. We'll go back to when the stars of Hollywood's golden age dodged high tax rates in a moment. First, though, if you go to our website, economist.com slash uspod, you'll find the best offer to subscribe to The Economist. With the digital and print subscription, you'll get not only full access to the website and all the apps, but a paper copy delivered to your door every week. This, I think, is still the finest way to read The Economist. Without your social media notifications and email alerts pinging in while you've got your nose in an article. In the latest edition, there's Simon's piece on Joe Biden's tax plans. We preview what the Supreme Court has on its docket this term. And Lexington looks at why the fossil fuel lobby is still so much more powerful than the renewables lobby. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. When progressive Democrats are attacked for wanting to impose punitive tax rates on the very rich, a Republican president provides a useful riposte. Well, let's get specific. How high would you go? You've said before you'd go above 50 percent. How high? We haven't come up with an exact number yet, but it will not be as high as the number under Dwight D. Eisenhower, which was 90 percent. But it will be. (laughs) I'm not that much of a socialist compared to Eisenhower. (laughs) Bernie Sanders' laugh line at a 2016 Democratic debate was echoed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when defending her income tax proposal on The Colbert Show. You know, people are yelling, you know, she's a socialist, she wants 70% marginal tax rates. Under Republican Republican administration, Dwight Eisenhower, we had 90% marginal tax rates. It's true that for most of the 1950s, the marginal income tax rate for those earning over $200,000 was 91%, and the economy still flourished. But hardly anyone actually had that sort of income. So it was only a tiny group of the super wealthy that ended up paying 91 cents to the dollar. Just 10,000 households, according to the best guess of the IRS. In those days, the rich weren't tech entrepreneurs or corporate CEOs, but the stars of the golden age of Hollywood, like Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, and Old Blue Eyes, Frank Sinatra. 
which led to the curious phenomenon of oil wells across America being owned by these stars of stage and screen. The oil depletion allowance was meant to be an incentive to drill for oil, with any taxable income from a well reduced by 27.5%. But it became a lucrative tax loophole. Whether you were an oil magnate or an Oscar winner, the allowance was a way to make money and pay less tax without the IRS knocking on your door. The oil depletion allowance loophole became so notorious that in 1957, President Eisenhower was asked about it. I'm not prepared to say it's evil, he said, admitting that while a number of rich men were taking advantage of it unfairly, there had to be an incentive to drill for gas and oil. President Gerald Ford eventually signed a bill closing the allowance for large companies in 1975. America's 90% income tax rate was real, but it wasn't effective. It's now a useful yarn to spin when the far left want to sound less scary, rather than a model of how to fairly and successfully redistribute wealth. Charlotte, the top rate of income tax now is nowhere near 90%, but it's still the case that people don't really pay that top rate, right? There are all sorts of ways that if you're a high-earning American in the top tax bracket, you can lower your income tax. And there have been some controversial examples of this, ProPublica got hold of the tax returns of some of the wealthiest Americans and found they paid little or or almost no uh, income tax at all. Before we get into the politics and economics of taxing wealth at the high end, can you talk a little bit about the context in which Democrats are trying to push through their tax bill? I mean, this comes off the back of what was a pretty big tax cut and change to the taxation system when Donald Trump was president in 2017, which was really the main legislative achievement of his presidency, maybe the only one, in fact. Yeah, in some ways, Donald Trump having passed those tax cuts helps Democrats a bit, I think, in a few ways. One is that they can say that they're not having a blanket, enormous increase in ways that are absolutely revolutionary because they're just walking back some of Trump's tax cuts. So I think that that helps them on one dimension. And then second, Trump's tax reforms weren't actually that popular among many ordinary voters. And that's in part because they couldn't really understand its benefit. So when you look at polling around Trump's tax reform, people couldn't really decipher the ways in which it was helping them. So for instance, if they got a smaller refund from the government, they thought that this meant they were paying more in taxes and they didn't like that. And I think that that confusion may help explain why Trump was so keen to take personal credit for the stimulus checks that people received during the pandemic. But there was a bit of confusion basically among ordinary Americans for how Trump's tax reform helped them. And so I think both that confusion plus the fact that the Biden administration can say that it's just walking back some of Trump's tax cuts rather than imposing a blanket increase, that those both do help Biden politically. One thing, though, I'd add, though, is that I think the IRS and John Fassman, our resident historian, may correct me on this, but it seems like it's more politicized as an agency probably than any point in its history. You had, during the Trump administration, of course, the IRS settle 
cases charging that they were investigating the tax-exempt status of conservative groups. This was something that really Republicans were focused on, that the IRS was a corrupt government agency out to get them. So there was that scandal. But then also you had Republican-controlled governments withholding money from the IRS, such that the IRS has outdated computer systems. It can't hire qualified people. And at some point, the idea that the IRS is incompetent as an agency becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you don't give them money to do their jobs. Biden's tax proposal does increase, actually, funding for the IRS to try to remedy this problem. But in the politics of tax reform, the fact that the very agency charged with collecting tax is itself seen almost as a political body, I think is emblematic of just how contentious taxation is. I think that's exactly right. One of the subtler forms of revenue raising in this Biden plan is increased money to the IRS for enforcement, which will crack down on tax evasion and tax avoidance. Charlotte, so Biden and the Democrats in the House keen to increase taxes on the wealthy. And so we've got this increased top rate of income tax. But they haven't gone down the Elizabeth Warren route of proposing a tax on wealth. Why is that? The reason why they're proposing raising a tax on income, but not wealth, is that it's actually really hard to tax wealth. So the reason why Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and other progressives have talked about taxing wealth is because both the very richest Americans have huge amounts of wealth, that some of which remains untaxed, but also that it's politically popular, right? So Pew data shows that the share of people who are worried that companies or really rich people don't pay their fair share is nearly double the percentage of voters who are concerned about the level of their own taxes. And, you know, going after the likes of Jeff Bezos seems like a good idea. There are not that many people who would have a problem with that. But the issue with a wealth tax is that it's hard to value people's wealth accurately. Um, You're going to get a lot of tax avoidance. And you see this in the experience of countries that have tried to implement it. In the early 1990s, there were 12 rich countries that had a wealth tax. There are only three now. And so Warren and some others continue to be in favor of this. Biden instead, um, the current proposals instead, seem to be coalescing around the idea of a 3% surcharge on individual income above $5 million, but not what Warren had proposed, which was a 3% tax on the overall net worth of households and trusts above a billion dollars. So there's a bit of a distinction there, and I think it's a pragmatic one. But this gets to kind of the heart of the problem, right, which is that the Democrats have a big desire to increase investment, to increase government spending. Obviously, somehow we need to pay for this. And there's just huge amount of disagreement that falls into two categories. One is that collecting tax is actually technically difficult, as the wealth tax, I think, illuminates very plainly, and then also politically treacherous. And so you see Democrats trying to find ways that they both pragmatically and politically can move forward. What's happening right now with the House proposal and and Biden's support for it is they're the best attempt that they've had to date, the best thing that they can come up with. But politically, it remains pretty tricky because Republicans are making the calculation that it's really going to help them to cast Biden's entire agenda as a socialist expansion that will make us, heaven forbid, look like a Scandinavian country. So I think that's just the plain politics of it. And we'll see in the next few weeks whether Democrats can convince uh, voters and convince their colleagues in the Senate that they're right. 
So that, I suppose, is how you end up with the Democrats proposing not a wealth tax, but to increase the top rate of income tax. But their definition of who's rich seems kind of wild to me. I mean, this new top rate would only kick in on those earning more than $400,000 a year, which puts you at something like the 95th percentile of earners in America. I mean, it seems like a slightly wild definition of who's rich in America to take the 95th percentile as, as the cutoff point. Okay, thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to compare the way the US taxes its citizens with how other rich countries do it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. John, you've been speaking to a tax policy expert to get some international context and understand how America differs from other countries when it comes to taxing her citizens. Yeah, I spoke with Erica York, who is an economist with the Tax Foundation's Center for Federal Tax Policy. And I began by asking her how the American tax system differs from that of other rich countries. When it comes to raising tax revenue, the United States deviates substantially from countries in the OECD on average on certain sources of revenue. So compared to the OECD average, the United States relies significantly more on individual income taxes. In 2019, for example, OECD countries on average raised about 24% of their total tax revenue from individual income taxes, while the share in the United States was 41.5%, so much higher. That's partially because more than half of business income in the United States is reported on individual income tax returns. So that means that the U.S. collects a significant share of business tax revenue through its individual income tax, thanks to its uniquely large pass-through business sector, rather than uh, collecting that at the corporate level. Pass-through businesses are legally synonymous with the individuals who own them, and that contrasts with C corporations that are legally separate from their owners. You mentioned corporate taxes. Let me ask you the same question about corporate taxes. How does America's corporate tax system compare to other rich countries? Yeah, so on average, OECD countries collect a rather small share of revenue from the corporate income tax. In 2019, that was a little under 10%. The U.S. collected about 4% of revenue from the corporate income tax, so that looks quite a bit lower. But as we just mentioned, we need to make a correction for that uniquely large pass-through sector. There are a couple of ways you can correct for that, and when you do, it shows that the U.S. raises a comparable amount of revenue from businesses, as do OECD countries. But when it comes to the corporate tax rate, the United States statutory corporate tax rate currently sits at about 25.8%. That's 21% at the federal level, plus the average of state and local rates that are charged in the U.S. And that puts us about in the middle of the pack relative to OECD countries, where the average excluding the U.S. is 22.7%. Prior to the 2017 tax change, which reduced the U.S. rate from 35% to 21% at the federal level, we were the highest in the OECD. Now, one thing that other OECD countries have that America doesn't is a is a broad system of consumption-based taxes, which are often called value-added taxes. Can you explain a bit about how those work and why we don't have them here in America? Yeah, that is the other major deviation in the United States. 
2019, OECD countries raised on average about one third of their tax revenue through consumption taxes like a value-added tax or a VAT, uh, meaning consumption taxes are the most important source of revenue for most OECD countries. The United States is the only country in the OECD without a VAT. Now we do have sales taxes uh, at the state and local level, but they're relatively low by comparison and we don't have any broad-based consumption taxes at the federal level. Instead, we have the individual income tax as our most important source. There are different ways to structure it, of course, but what it results in is a tax on consumption rather than a tax on um, investment, which can happen under income taxes. So they're a relatively more efficient source of revenue than something like a corporate income tax because they don't place a burden on marginal investment. But consumption taxes are often criticized as regressive because lower income households would pay a slightly higher share of their income under a consumption tax than a higher income household would. And so that can create political difficulty, especially in the United States, when lawmakers want to fund their spending with progressive sources of revenue, like taxes on high income individuals or business income taxes it makes it politically difficult to get something like a value-added tax in the United States. So is America's tax system unusually progressive? Yeah. So if you look at something like our income tax system, if you would compare that to um, the income tax system of Scandinavian countries who have some of these social benefit programs that lawmakers are proposing right now in the U.S., they fund them in a different way. For instance, um, in, in Denmark, the top marginal income tax rate kicks in at about the average income level there, whereas in the United States, our top marginal income tax rate doesn't kick in until about nine times the average level. So what that means is that our lower income and middle uh, income taxpayers in the U.S. pay relatively lower amounts of their income uh, through our income tax than would someone in a country that has programs like these that, that are being considered. So, Charlotte, some useful myth-busting there from Erica. America's income tax system is pretty progressive in the sense that those at the top pay a higher rate. There are lots of loopholes. But nevertheless, even if you look at the effective rates of taxation, and the CBO has some charts on this, it really does seem that rich Americans pay a higher rate of income tax. And at least according to Erica's analysis, which mirrors what I've seen elsewhere, you could argue that it's middle upper middle, lower middle income Americans who actually pay relatively less compared with their European peers. I mean, so you could argue that Democrats should be raising taxes on them instead of just saying, okay, we're only going to raise taxes on those earning on those earning over $400,000 a year. I mean, that would be politically less palatable. Uh, but in a sense, looking at how America taxes, it might be more sensible. I don't know. I think that both politically and looking at the income distribution of Americans that it would be sort of strange for the Democrats to say that lower income or middle class Americans should pay more, particularly given the extreme concentration of wealth at the very, very top of the income distribution, which is more exaggerated than in Europe. So I think both as a matter of politics and then also as a matter of policy, it probably does make sense to go the route that Biden has pursued. And Charlotte, part of the Democratic proposal is to raise business taxes, which Donald Trump cut. Is that good politics? Is it good policy? I think uh, 
probably it is good politics, given that Americans, when you pull them and ask them what they're concerned about with the tax system, most of them do say they think that companies aren't paying their fair share. In terms of um, the pushback from it, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, all of these groups are arguing vociferously that a higher tax rate would harm American competitiveness and cost jobs. I think it's worth going back to the Trump tax cuts and looking at what they did and whether it actually caused companies to invest more in America and bring higher wages, which is what Trump promised they would do. The IMF in 2019 said that there was no actually big effect on business investment, that it was in line with growth and demand. And there are a few possible reasons for this, that monopoly power may explain some of the lack of the tax cuts impact on investment, that monopolies are generating profits. It's not just strict profits coming from returns on investment. There wasn't really a long-term impact on growth from the cuts to corporate taxes. Estimates are that the long-term impact would be at most a tenth of a percentage point a year. Those tax cuts did, however, increase the budget deficit. The deficit as a share of GDP rose by more than 50% without the sustained increase in investment. So I think that Biden would make the case to, to the Chamber of Commerce and to the others that you had a tax cut. It didn't actually lead to a big increase in investment. So perhaps you're just crying wolf this time around. John, can you go a bit deeper on this point that Erica made about America lacking a value-added tax? I think it might help if you explain, to begin with, what a, what a VAT is. Yeah, basically, a VAT is just a tax on a good produced at every level of its production, meaning that, you know, when, if you want to think about a loaf of bread, so when the wheat is sold to a miller to make into flour, the miller pays tax. When the miller sells the flour to a baker, the baker pays some tax. So it's a, it's a sort of gradated level of consumption taxes on a good at every level of production. What that does is broadens out the tax base. I think Charlotte is absolutely right that as a matter of politics and policy, taxing the wealthy is a good idea. I think it's necessary, though, but not sufficient. I think if we're going to have a huge sort of Scandinavian-style expansion of the welfare state, we need to have a big expansion of the tax base. Right now, about half of all Americans pay no income taxes at all. That's an extremely narrow base. The argument against a value-added tax has always been that it's regressive. And it is to a point, it's true that you know people with, with lower incomes will pay a somewhat greater share of their total income in taxes. But I think with the right amount of redistributive spending, which is what the Biden administration wants to build with this massive expansion, that effect is negated somewhat. So people will pay more taxes, but they'll get more in return. It broadens the base. It's less subject to evasion. And again, it's going to be politically very risky to introduce something like this. But I just think at a certain point, if you want a big, expansive state, it's inevitable. And so, John, you're in agreement with the leader in the weekly edition written by Henry Kerr, our economics editor, where he says that, you know, if America wants something more like a European welfare state, it'll have to have European VATs. I think Henry put it really well. He said, there's a reason that VATs fund European-style welfare states. There's just no desirable alternative. It's broad-based, it's reliable, and I think if we want a big European-style welfare state, America will need to have a big European-style tax system. One thing that is that we haven't talked about yet, but that is happening really in real time, um, in addition to these fights on Capitol Hill, is the international component of what the Biden administration 
sees as its broad tax reform includes this idea of a of a global minimum tax. Janet Yellen is pursuing this quite aggressively and just this week was talking about how she hopes that there'll be an agreement by uh, late October when there's a meeting of the G20. But basically the idea is that there is this problem in terms of the way that that companies book their profits that we don't see companies investing a lot overseas necessarily, but they are using accounting methods to book profits overseas. And that's a pretty dramatic change. In the 60s, less than 10% of foreign profits earned by huge American multinationals, excluding oil companies, but broadly by American multinationals, were booked in really low tax jurisdictions. And by 2018, um, more than 50% of foreign profits earned by American multinationals were were booked in some of these places like Ireland, for instance. Um, Ireland slashed its corporate tax rate and has seen a huge increase in pre-tax foreign profits booked there. And so this is Biden's attempt to try to deal with this problem, that they want to increase America's corporate tax rate, but have other countries do the same. So there's a lot resting on whether that uh, idea of a global minimum corporate tax can go ahead so that you have a more sensible uh, way of taxing companies rather than what feels a bit like a global race to the bottom. Well, this has been quite a nerdy episode, and I've got a very nerdy quiz for both of you. Americans famously rebelled over paying taxes to the British at the Boston Tea Party in 1773. The earliest mention of tea in The Economist was in our first edition in 1843. The notices section at the back of the paper had an enticing offer from G.T. Mansell & Co. of Cheapside for rural readers missing city comforts. For those families resident in the country who had hitherto been restrained from sending to London for their tea and coffee on account of the expense of carriage, the merchants promised to remove the extra charge for anyone ordering more than five shillings worth, the Victorian equivalent of Amazon Prime, if you like. Sticking with the tea theme, in what decade was the tea bag invented? I think it was um, 1920s or something like that. John, but you're a food historian. I mean, this is targeted to you. I I have no better... What did you go for, Fasman? I haven't gone for anything. Charlotte went for the 1920s. I'll say the 1880s. You're both equidistant from the answer. It was the 1900s. In 1901, Roberta C. Lawson and Mary Malaren from Milwaukee filed for a patent for a tea leaf holder using a stitch mesh fabric designed so the tea leaves wouldn't float into the drinker's mouth, but the water could infuse through it. Staying in Milwaukee, who survived an assassination attempt while giving an election speech there in 1912? 1912, was it, uh, I don't know, Woodrow Wilson? Yeah, I don't know of any other politicians well from that era, so I'll go with Woodrow Wilson. And I'll also say that I find loose leaf tea to be completely pretentious and unnecessary. I agree, but I think, hang on, I want to revise, I think it was Eugene V. Debs. It wasn't Wilson or Debs, it was President Theodore Roosevelt. He was running unsuccessfully for a third term in office. He was probably saved by the 50-page script in his coat pocket, which blunted the bullet's impact. Roosevelt carried on giving the speech, with the bullet still inside him, before heading off to hospital. He was a great man. He was a great man. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks to our producers, Harriet Noble, John Shields, and Nicola Rofast. 
If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.